0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan, calling from The Post. Am I getting the President Trump, how are you? Alice. Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 8th. Today, how mass shootings are changing national security priorities the people who are still displaced by last year's wildfires, and deconstructing gender-reveal parties.
1: In El Paso this weekend, a 21-year-old male from the Dallas area who appears to have been radicalized online traveled all the way to El Paso, which of course is an important border town for the United States with Mexico with some heavy weaponry and opened fire. We are treating it as a domestic terrorism case. Apparently trying to target Mexicans or Mexican-Americans.
0: Greg Miller is a national security reporter for The Post.
1: And I'm not sure we have a final death toll yet. It appears to be designed to intimidate
0: a civilian population, to say the least.
1: But so far, we know that 22 people were killed.
0: And we're going to do what we do to terrorists in this country, which is deliver swift and certain justice.
1: Our first responders are working diligently.
0: And after this happened, you took a look at this from the perspective of national security. Why did this strike you as a national security story?
1: Well, because what we're dealing with here is terrorism. And I think most security experts see it that way now. It's a category where it increasingly looks like a national problem and a national phenomenon and threat. And when you start to look at it that way, inevitably you have to compare it to the terrorism that we have as a country been focused on fighting for about 20 years now in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks. And when you start to make those comparisons in terms of how much attention we're giving to these two strains of extremism and hate and violence, how much resources are going toward each of these you start to see some some troubling disparities. And I think a lot of national security officials are starting to see it that way.
0: So just to make the comparison, when we're talking about our traditional kind of longtime idea of terrorism, what is involved in investigating or preventing those kinds of attacks?
1: Right. And it is so extensive, Martine, that it's almost better to ask what isn't involved, right? And we use almost every means of national power or have over the past 20 years in fighting terrorist groups, including al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. I mean, we're talking about wars, military operations, drone strikes, entire departments of the CIA and other intelligence agencies, the formation of new intelligence agencies, including the National Counterterrorism Center, the complete transformation of the FBI from largely a law enforcement agency to one that now also is focused on collecting intelligence on the terror threat. And we've transformed many of our domestic laws to enable much greater surveillance related to detecting terrorism and giving law enforcement officials much greater latitude for arresting and prosecuting those who support these groups. But, you know, this is all targeted at these foreign terrorist entities, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, most of all. And there, there is not even a remotely comparable organization against this new strain of domestic terror, which largely centers on white nationalism or white supremacy.
0: So you're saying that there are experts who are calling for that focus to start to shift to domestic terrorism and for there to be a realignment of priorities. But in terms of real terms, what would that actually look like?
1: That's a really good question and a difficult one. And there's two things I would say. First, that nobody is saying that we as a country should transform or turn our resources toward domestic terrorism on anywhere near approaching the scale that we did after 9-11. It's painful to go through weekends like this where we see violence and we see loss of lives. I mean, it is not no, nowhere near on the scale of the September 11 where nearly 3,000 people were killed. So there is no corresponding event of a magnitude of 9-11 calling for a transformation of the U.S. government in this case. Nevertheless, you know, there are, there are lots of things that I think law enforcement and national security officials think could and should be done now because since 9-11... More of us are being killed in the United States by domestic terror strains now, related to white nationalism principally, than Islamist radicals or al-Qaeda and Islamic State combined. So there are limitations and there are problems. I mean, the white nationalist groups and these domestic terror operations don't have the same hierarchical structure of al-Qaeda. They don't have a a leadership like Osama bin Laden and Naiman Zawahiri. They are not foreign entities, which gives you a lot more latitude, where you're not bound by American laws that prevent domestic espionage or surveillance of American citizens. And all those things are important. Nevertheless, to point out one simple example, the National Counterterrorism Center, created to help serve as a clearinghouse for information on emerging terror threats. It's focused almost exclusively on al-Qaeda and ISIS nearly 20 years after 9-11 and does next to nothing on domestic terror and white nationalism. A lot of people think that's crazy at this point.
0: I think that some people would point to what you were just talking about in terms of the lack of a hierarchical structure when it comes to stuff like domestic terrorism. But do you think that that's a valid reason for why national security and law enforcement officials aren't more focused on this?
1: Well, I think that there's a, a number of reasons why law enforcement is not more focused on this. And first, we should say that it looks like the FBI is increasingly focused on this. Right? The FBI director recently testified about how the majority of the domestic terrorism cases they're pursuing now and investigating are related to white supremacy. I will say that, at least over, uh, you know, some recent memory. Uh, an awful lot of the uh, racially motivated violent extremism is motivated by what you might call kind of a white supremacist type of ideology. That would not have been true five years ago or 10 years ago, I'm positive. All of this now falls on the FBI shoulders. Whereas the, the war against Al Qaeda and the Islamic State, as we talked about a few minutes ago, involves so many different entities and aspects of the United States national government and its power. So it's really, you know, not anywhere near to being comparable in the, in the kind of level of focus and energy and leadership that's brought to the problem. One of the other obstacles, though, in this case is possibly or arguably in the White House. You have a president who takes positions and makes statements that contain many aspects of or are consistent with many parts of the white nationalist agenda. You can hear echoes of his words in the manifesto of the El Paso shooter. And so when you have a president who seems to sort of be fanning that kind of animus and inciting possibly that kind of violence. You know, it's it's very different than having a president who's, who's condemning it unequivocally and organizing and leading the government's organization against that adversary.
0: Hmm. I wonder if part of the reason why creating a shift like this seems so challenging is also just because the fact that there are so many national security agencies and and law enforcement departments right now that are kind of lacking top-level leadership.
1: Yeah, not only lacking top-level leadership, but often under attack from American leadership. I mean, we're at a moment right now where we have an outgoing director of national intelligence. The person that Trump wanted to replace him had to withdraw from consideration after there were gaping holes found in his resume. And, you know, Trump talked about wanting somebody in that job who can bring to heel intelligence agencies that he accuses of having run amok. So, right, I mean, this is a chaotic White House, and it is a White House that has spent the past two years really attacking the very agencies, including the FBI, that we need most to be running smoothly to protect us.
0: If there were a kind of top-down reorganization of priorities to focus more on white supremacist violence or, or other forms of domestic terrorism, what would that look like in terms of like surveillance apparatuses or how would they actually be able to do that?
1: So there are things that they probably wouldn't be able to do and probably shouldn't be able to do. I mean, extensive sweeping surveillance of Americans is probably something that we as a public are not willing to live with. Other countries go much farther in that direction. The United Kingdom, for example, does much farther in terms of allowing domestic authorities sweeping surveillance powers. But there are other things that the United States probably could do. One of the biggest weapons that the FBI got after September 11, for example, was a law that was built around the term material support to terrorism. It made it illegal to materially support an organization like al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. That meant giving money to it training people, offering help to. I mean, it is a broad law that you can bring to bear on people in the United States who have otherwise difficult to prosecute connections to those kinds of groups. There's nothing like that for domestic terror organizations. You can't do that against a domestic terror cell. So an alteration of a law like that would go a long way toward enabling uh, the FBI and other agencies to have more tools to uproot networks of white supremacy.
0: So what is going to happen from here? If national security officials and and law enforcement are talking about how they also see this as a problem and they also want to do more when it comes to domestic terrorism, will that be enough to help make something tangible happen?
1: I think yes and no. I think, yes, I think it's likely that an entity like the National Counterterrorism Center is going to start to look at its mission and start to think about what can we do to help all these these other terror threats that aren't al-Qaeda and ISIS. But there are other, uh, as we just talked about, obstacles. As far as we know, the White House, for example, has not convened any kind of National Security Council meeting or even Homeland Security principles meeting after the El Paso attack to ask big picture, what can you guys who run these various national security agencies in the United States government, what can you do and what can't you do? If you're not having a conversation like that, driven by the White House, which really demands the attention and support of the president, it's not clear how far you can go.
0: Greg Miller covers national security for the Post.
2: Fire rescue, what's
1: the address of the emergency? I'm in Paradise, California. Okay. you are in Paradise, California. This is a campfire. Everything that you can see right here, pretty burned up.
0: You just don't think it's really going to be in your lifetime or your children's lifetime. You don't think you're going to wake up and one morning your whole world is gone. The campfire in 2018 was the largest and deadliest wildfire in California history. It leveled the city of paradise. Tens of thousands of people had to find new homes and new lives. But some people tried to stay in paradise. And one of those people is a woman named Holly Ratliff. Everything's changed. I lived in a home and my kids were playing in the backyard. And now... I'm facing living in my car if things don't turn out right. And not having a place to call home is really hard.
2: Paradise, just because of the amount of people, it was retirees, it was a lot of people living on disability, it was like low-income families. They really don't have any of the safeguards that are set up for homeowners and things like that when they lose their homes in these natural disasters.
0: Whitney Leeming is a video journalist at The Post. She and our colleague Alice Lee spent time with Holly as she struggled to stay in paradise after the fire.
3: There used to be a, a paradise sign right up here. May paradise be all its name implies. These are all the crosses of everybody that died.
2: She lived in paradise most of her life. Her mother lived there as well. She was renting her first real house. Had lived there for about two years before the fire and really just started to make it home. Yeah. So this is home.
3: All of this stuff that I'm scooping up is years of memories.
2: And by the time you met her, what was her life like? So we met her about three and a half months after the fire was the first time we sat down and talked with her. And by that time, she had already, I think, gone through like 10 moves. She couldn't afford to like do long blocks of time and dealing with reimbursements for FEMA and things like that. And there would be gaps where she didn't have a place to stay that night. And so she would move her children to friends' houses and things like that, pack things up and then move all of our stuff into a small storage unit she was able to secure. And that storage unit meant the world to her because it was at least a small place that she could call her own. And even at one point she was like, well, you know, if I have nowhere else to sleep with my kids. I could put a cot right there if I had to. never know. Holly was always on the move. And there'd be these moments where she would kind of calm down a little bit or slow down. And she was in our storage unit trying to organize and put some semblance together of her life. And all of a sudden she sat down and kind of just started talking about how everything in the storage unit had been donated to them by charities. None of this stuff is sentimental to me.
0: Not one thing in here has... There's not one baby outfit. There's not one photo album there's not one christmas ornament with a little handprint on it there's nothing
3: it's just stuff
2: really put into perspective because the things she misses aren't the big ticket items that we spend so much on as society. It was gifts from her kids and macaroni necklaces and things like that. And I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to is what you would grab when you ran out of a fire. It took her a while to accept that their old life was gone. And as she continued to look and try to find housing in Chico or any of the neighboring areas... She couldn't find anything because rent prices had gone so high, so competitive right now for all the families who are looking to stay. Because of the fire that the rent prices had had skyrocketed. Yeah, there is a scene that my colleague Alice Lee filmed where Holly has taken her little daughter to a birthday party and she's talking to some of the other mothers at the party and they... They're talking about the rents jumping like two to three times our original cost just because the need is so high at the moment. That's not helping people. Well, that's a, I'm on Section 8 and they will I can't out. find anything that will take Section 8 because they can get triple the amount if they... But they have lost everything yeah. they own. So where did Holly end up going? So Holly moved up to Oregon, to Sutherland. Our move is my attempt in hoping that I'm making the right decision. Which is about a six, seven-hour drive from Paradise. All paradises is what we have in our memories. Sometimes that fades a little bit, and that's scary. But it's been six months. I realize there, there's no home up there. So we got to move on and find home in Oregon. Disasters don't recover easily. It takes months and years to just begin, like, some of the major processes. And it's going to be years or decades until Paradise is fully recovered, and it will never be the same again. Whitney, thank you so much. Thanks.
3: I think the closest example we have to what happened in Paradise was in New Orleans after Katrina. I'm Francis Steed Sellers and I'm a writer on the national desk of the Washington Post. Francis says that people being forced out of their
0: homes by natural disasters like what happened in Paradise and New Orleans, it's happening more and
3: more. That displacement changed the city very much. Many, many people decided not to go back. Certainly there is a whole field looking at so-called climate refugees, people who are displaced by extremes of weather. So not the, just
0: wildfires also. Right, but this wildfire was certainly
3: yes, exactly. This wildfire was certainly precipitated by extraordinary winds which had dried the forest there and then drove the fire and sent embers way, way, way ahead of the actual front of the fire. There was an immediate moment after the fire when some people got insurance money from their houses and many of those people moved quite quickly. Others really wanted to stay and thought they might be able to rebuild. At the same time, Paradise was a sort of quirky place with uh, many of the houses that way predated the 2008 um, fire code. Those houses can't be rebuilt the way they were, and many of those houses housed some of the poorer or the less well-off people in Paradise. Those are the people, and if you speak to experts about disasters, it's the people on the lower end of the economic scale who suffer most, and I think that's the story you see with Holly being forced to move on and facing a new reality. So when you talk to some of the people who had been affected by the fire,
0: what did they say about what it's been like to try to rebuild their lives?
3: Some of them told me about the triggers that take them back eight months ago to what they had before and what they're struggling to rebuild now. One man I talked to told me that he used to have a left-handed can opener. He was a left-handed mm-hmm. man, and now he doesn't have one anymore, and every time he picks up a can, he fumbles. His muscle memory makes him think it's the left-handed can opener, and, and that moment takes him back to his past. The small thing that those, he lost. The small thing that, that he was lost. part of his life. One man rescued photographs, and they're all searing reminders of the things he didn't rescue. And do you
0: have a rough sense of the numbers of how many people were displaced by this one wildfire?
3: So the initial numbers were I think 50,000 people moved out of, 30,000 from Paradise itself and another 20,000 from the surrounding communities. Many of those people landed up in Oroville and Chico, the towns immediately below Paradise. Some of them have moved towards churches they knew about. Some people have moved to family members. I spoke to a woman in Massachusetts whose brother had called and said, I found a rental and she just got up and left. But the diaspora is extraordinary. It's the kind of movement that one hears about in other countries of of so-called internally displaced people. Mm. And you don't often think of in an American context. But I think experts are telling us that with our changing climate, we can expect more of it.
0: And so because there is this expectation that we're going to see a lot more so-called climate refugees, is that something that officials across America are preparing for?
3: Not openly. Academics are certainly pushing for this. And when I've talked to the people in FEMA, they are very interested in thinking ahead about some of these issues. But the U.S. is interesting in that it doesn't have a centralized way of monitoring and tracking people who are displaced in large numbers like this. It hasn't been historically a big problem. If you go to countries like Japan and the Philippines, they will track people. But there is no centralized means of tracking people. And it would be controversial. On the other hand, now with our cell phones, private companies have enormous amounts of access to enormous amounts of data. And some of them have been very involved recently. There's a company called Thassos and also Facebook in monitoring how people move immediately after disasters. And they will reach out to some of the disaster relief organizations and be able to show where groups of people have gone, and that has been helpful to providing aid. But these longer-term questions are far less well-answered and harder to answer.
0: Well, it seems like even the idea that there will be a future America where many Americans are refugees within their own country, I think is really hard for people to wrap their heads around. Right. I don't think we've thought about
3: it in the American context at all.
0: But it seems like in the aftermath of the campfire, that that migration was so haphazard, right, that it was just wherever somebody had family or maybe a place where a few other of their neighbors or members of their community were going. But it seems like we don't actually have a plan for when this happens again in this part of California, which it probably will, where are we going to put these people? Where should they go? What housing will they
3: live in? And where do they want to go? This is one of the things, of course, that's very important to make sure that people who need to rebuild their lives are able to do so in a way that will help them to re-enter the workplace and to, as they all want to be, gainfully involved in their future, their own futures.
0: Francis Steed Sellers is a reporter and Whitney Leeming is a video journalist, both for the National Desk at The Washington Post. To watch the documentary about Holly Ratliff, produced by Whitney and Alice Lee, head to postreports.com. And now, one more thing. On the sublime pleasure of watching gender reveal party fails.
4: There was one that I really liked that was a backyard party where the couple was going to let off fireworks. My name is Monica Hesse. I'm a columnist at The Post, and I write about gender. You could tell from the beginning that there was like something a little bit off with this setup, Because the platform that the fireworks were on, it was like someone had pulled out a towel rack from the bathroom and they had like put these fireworks on it, essentially this rickety piece of Wayfair furniture or something to use as the platform. And so you see the fireworks go off. And you don't end up seeing the color of the fireworks because what you instead see is the guest holding the camera, drop the camera, begin to scream, and run in the opposite direction. Because it turns out backyard fireworks are kind of unpredictable, and so you just have the guests like dispersing like mad around the lawn. Uh, The local news wrote about it, and one of the guests later was like, no one was seriously injured. We all just had a few burns. And you know what? Like, no one was seriously injured is not the sentence that you want people remembering from your gender reveal party. What I think is really fascinating about watching gender reveal fails is that it's sort of the best illustration of that slogan, man makes plans and God laughs, because you see parents who think that they can exert this control over their perspective life change. Like, we are announcing we're having a boy. We are announcing we're having a girl. We're on top of this. And then, like, when the plans just completely dissolve, it's sort of... (laughs) I don't want to say it's funny, but it's, it's sort of really symbolic for the parenting journey that they're about to embark on. My original plan was to just sort of write about the gender reveal fail and why it struck a chord with people. Because it wasn't just me. There are there are hundreds of compilations online of other people who can't stop watching these fails. And I was really curious to know what, what, is, what is that about. Um, and then I came across a Facebook post that uh, this California woman had written just the day before. And it was a really fascinating post because she was, in a way responsible for the entire gender reveal party trend. She had written about one that she had thrown about a decade ago to announce that she was going to have a daughter, and and that post a decade ago went viral, and it caused lots of parents to say, oh, great idea, I'll do that, and I'll make it bigger, and I'll make it more pyrotechnic. So she was really at the, the forefront of this. And then she had this new posting just a few weeks ago that said, Hey, ha ha, joke's on me. I did this big party announcing that I was going to have a little girl. And it turns out that I'm raising this amazing kid who is now expressing themselves in a non-binary way. And it wasn't even clear whether her kid now identifies as a girl or whether, whether the kid identifies as gender neutral. But the lesson that the mother had taken from this was don't get so wrapped up in what gender of kid you're having. Get wrapped up in how amazing your kid is going to turn out to be in ways that you can't even begin to predict and that a gender reveal party would never be able to tell you. My favorite video, I think, is not as pyrotechnic as some of the others. It doesn't involve an alligator. It doesn't involve fireworks. But it's a very simple gender reveal video where a couple brings out this large balloon to their backyard. And the balloon is filled with either pink or blue powder. And the idea is that they're going to give the balloon to their dogs. And the dogs are going to um, you play tug-of-war with the balloon and it'll burst open and that will be the reveal. And instead what happens is they give it to their dogs. The dogs like bop it on their noses a few times. And then the balloon floats away into the atmosphere without opening at all. And the camera just like pans up as it floats away. And for me, it's a great video because the parents <laughs> in the background are just laughing hysterically.
2: Hiley! You were supposed to
4: pop it, Harley! Huh?
2: <laughs> well, that didn't work.
0: It was a good try.
4: (laughs) Because it's not what they wanted. It's not what they expected. But they're still having a baby, and it's going to be beautiful, whatever the outcome is.
0: Monica Hesse is a columnist for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's Post Reports, we're taking a look at the intersection of gun culture and American masculinity, and why that's so often overlooked in the debate over gun policy.
1: I think we gravitate, especially in times of tragedy, to simple explanations. Fix the mental health care system. Fix the gun show loophole. Those things matter. Let's not dismiss those things. Those are part of a bigger picture of solutions. And one of those solutions has to be redefining what it means to be a boy and a man.